Hello and welcome to this installment of AZ Law. I'm your volunteer reader, Paul Wyke. I'm also a Phoenix attorney. We explore Arizona's legal and judicial systems in this new program. AZ Law came about to provide Arizona legal news for Sun Sounds of Arizona, the nonprofit reading service for people with disabilities, which makes it difficult for them to read or hold printed material. It's broadcast on the third Saturday of each month at 11 a.m. and other installments are available on demand. Our ArizonaLaw.org website is independent of SunSounds, but its prime focus is to support SunSounds. SunSounds, by the way, is a service of the Rio Salado Community Colleges, along with KJZZ and KBAQ radio stations. Our website has links to those stations and information on how you can become a member of them. We urge you to do so right now at ArizonasLaw.org. AZ Law is now available for download at the website as well. And you can also pick it up wherever you download podcasts, iTunes podcasts, Google Play Music and Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, etc., etc. You know how that works. But go do it and subscribe, please, as well. And now we have lots of articles uh, to read this week about Arizona's legal and judicial systems. So let's go ahead and get right to it. The first article is from Thursday, actually, no, Wednesday, from the Arizona Daily Star, reported by Kurt Prendergast. The headline is, Focus Titans in Second Trial of Arizona Border Aid Volunteer. This is a subject we've covered before here on AZ Law, so let's see what Kurt uh, has to say about the second trial. Five months after a jury deadlocked, federal prosecutors in Tucson are tightening their focus as they retry a border aid volunteer on smuggling charges. Rather than accuse Scott Warren of participating in a conspiracy to smuggle two Central American men into the United States, prosecutors on Tuesday said they planned to focus on what happened during four days in January of 2018 at a migrant aid station in Ajo. Warren is a volunteer with the Tucson-based humanitarian aid group called No More Deaths. In his first trial, he was accused of conspiring to smuggle a man from Honduras and another from El Salvador after they crossed the border illegally. Warren, a teacher with a doctorate in geography, testified that he provided basic medical care and food to Jose Sicaria Gaday, who's 21 years old, and Christian Perez Villanueva, who's 23, but he barely spoke with them in the following days. Federal prosecutors had argued Warren was the hub of a conspiracy that included a 67-year-old nurse and the operator of a migrant shelter in Sonoida, a Mexican border town south of Ajo. Neither of them were indicted or charged. The goal of the alleged conspiracy was to help migrants illegally cross the border and get to Phoenix, as well as to thwart the Border Patrol at every possible turn, according to the prosecutor's argument. A jury deadlocked 8-4 to four in June, with the majority favoring acquittal. Prosecutors announced in early July that they would retry Warren on two harboring charges, but they dropped the conspiracy charge. In her opening statement to jurors on Tuesday, federal prosecutor Anna Wright said the trial would focus on the four days and three nights that the two Central American migrants stayed at the aid station known as the barn. The two men asked Warren if they could stay at the barn because they had lost their camouflage clothing and needed a place safe from the watchful eye of the Border Patrol, she told the 16 jurors, including four alternates. 
She highlighted how the two men wanted for nothing while at the barn. They slept inside, cooked meals, and used their cell phones to take various photos of themselves in the kitchen, the common room, and in front of a mirror. After Border Patrol agents set up surveillance of the barn, they saw Warren walk outside with the two men and point out landmarks that Wright said were used to guide the migrants around a Border Patrol checkpoint north of Ajo. Agents then arrested Warren and the two men. This case is only about Scott Warren and whether he broke the law when he harbored and concealed Christian and Jose, Wright said. Warren faces up to a decade in prison if convicted on both felony harboring charges, but such a long sentence would be highly unusual in Tucson's federal court. An Arizona Daily Star analysis of about 360 human smuggling cases from 2018 showed sentences of probation were common for first-time offenders. The longest sentence was less than four years in prison. Defense lawyer Gregory Kuykendall told the jurors on Tuesday that the prosecution's case was a house of cards that is based on false assumptions about Scott's intent. Those assumptions led to a series of mistakes, and this prosecution is a culmination of those mistakes, said Kuykendall, who is representing Warren without being paid. The agents who arrested Warren were part of a unit that targeted smugglers, and their assumptions could be understandable, he said. When the agents saw migrants at the barn, they assumed Warren was a smuggler, he said. When they saw Warren point to landmarks, they assumed he was helping them to get around a checkpoint. Instead of trying to smuggle the two men, Warren was acting as a good Samaritan, Kuykendall said. He said Warren did what he could so the men would not die as so many others had in the vast desert near Ajo that is bigger than some states. Warren knew the boundaries of the law and he stayed well within them, Kuykendall said, noting that citizens are not obligated to report to the Border Patrol people that they suspect are in the country illegally. Migrants who illegally cross the border through the desert can get blisters on their feet, which leads to an ugly and predictable scenario that has played out in the desert around Ajo thousands and thousands of times, Kuykendall said. The blisters worsen and the migrant can't keep up with the group, he said. The group leaves the migrant behind. If the migrant doesn't know where they are or how to find help, they may die. The Pima County Office of the Medical Examiner has identified more than 3,000 sets of human remains suspected of belonging to migrants who died in the deserts of southern Arizona since 2001. Two weeks ago, federal prosecutors asked Judge Rainer Collins to ban Warren and his lawyers from mentioning the Trump administration or its policies. Prosecutors argued that political arguments would not help the jury decide the facts of the case. On Tuesday, before jurors came into the courtroom, Kuykendall said the prosecution of Warren was an effort by prosecutors to please their boss, meaning Trump. Wright said she and fellow prosecutor Nathaniel Walters were not the president's lawyers. Instead, they are career attorneys with the Department of Justice. Collins granted the request, ruling on Tuesday that he would not allow politics in this case. Warren's trial is the first of its kind in more than a decade in Tucson's federal court. He also is the last of nine volunteers with no more deaths who faced misdemeanor charges related to leaving humanitarian aid in 2017 on the Cabeza Prieta National Wildlife Refuge west of Tucson. He is waiting for the verdict from a bench trial in May before Collins. 
And that was from Kurt Prendergast of the Arizona Daily Star. Headline, Focus Titans in the Second Trial of Arizona Border Aid Volunteer. Our next article, this is also an art, uh, a case that we have been following on AZ Law. This is from the Arizona Republic from Friday. Indicted County Assessor Paul Peterson makes his first Utah court appearance. Reported by Jessica Baim from the Arizona Republic. Indicted Arizona adoption attorney and Maricopa County Assessor Paul Peterson appeared in Utah's 3rd District Court for the first time Friday morning. Judge Linda Jones read Peterson the 11 felony charges he faces in Utah, including one count of pattern of unlawful activity, four counts of human smuggling, three counts of communications fraud, and three counts of sale of a child. Peterson did not plead during the court appearance. He is scheduled to return to Utah for a three-day preliminary hearing, February 10th through the 12th. Peterson is also facing dozens more felony charges in Arizona and Arkansas related to an alleged international adoption scheme. The Utah Attorney General alleged that Peterson recruited more than 40 pregnant women from the Marshall Islands over the past three years and transported them to Utah, where they were paid to place their children for adoption in the U.S. The state's investigation centered on claims of human smuggling, Sean Reyes, Utah's Attorney General, said during a news conference after Peterson's arrest in October. The commercialization of children is illegal and the commoditization of children is simply evil, he said. Between December of 2016 and September of 2018, a little more than $2.7 million was deposited into a bank account Peterson provided to adoptive families to accept wire transfers, according to the Utah court documents. Most of the transfers included notes indicating they were payments for adoptions. Peterson has already pleaded not guilty to charges in Arizona and Arkansas, but this will be his first time in Utah following his arrest. He has posted bail in all three states and is now out of jail. He had to surrender his passport and must wear an ankle monitor. Following today's court appearance, Peterson's Utah attorney, Scott Williams, bashed prosecutors and others who he said have rushed to judgment. In particular, Williams called out Ronald Rasband, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The Arizona Republic reported earlier this week that Rasband denounced Peterson's adoption scheme as quote-unquote sickening. Williams called Rasband's remarks offensive to due process and inappropriate for the Latter-day Saints Church to make. I don't think the church is taking that position. I hope that is just Mr. Raspan's comments, he said. Williams also said that the scrutiny of Peterson has stigmatized the quote-unquote happy families that Peterson has helped create through his adoption practice for 15 years. Peterson did not speak but nodded when Williams spoke of the stigmatization. Williams said he is confused as to why prosecutors now decided to question Peterson when he has been operating his practice in the same way for 15 years open and notoriously, end quotes. Mr. Peterson had an adoption agency. It operated according to the law, and it involved willing participants that were treated fairly, and that's what the facts are going to show, said Williams. Richard Pyatt, a spokesman for the Utah Attorney General's office, said the office remains confident in its case, which came after a two-year investigation. 
And that article from the Arizona Republic, indicted County Assessor Paul Peterson, makes first Utah court appearance. Our next article is from the AZ Law website. We were the first to report on this. President Trump nominates Tucson Judge John Hinderaker for U.S. District Court bench. President Donald Trump today nominated Pima County Superior Court Judge John Hinderaker for a judgeship with the U.S. District Court. Hinderaker left private practice last year when Arizona Governor Doug Ducey appointed him to the bench. If confirmed to the lifetime position, Hinderaker will fill the vacancy created earlier this year when Judge Rayner Collins moved to senior status. So we have a link to one of our to our previous article. If both Hinderaker and Judge Scott Rash are confirmed by the Senate, Arizona will then have no vacancies on the district court bench for the first time in many years. Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema was the first to respond to our request for comment and indicated that she was pleased that the White House worked with me to move forward with the nomination. John Hinderaker brings a wealth of experience to the U.S. District Court as one of the most well-respected professionals in the Arizona legal community. He has served Arizona with distinction. I am confident he will continue that legacy on the District Court, and I am pleased the White House worked with me to find a highly qualified nominee for this important position, said Cinema. Governor Ducey also responded with a tweet calling Hinderaker an quote-unquote excellent judge and expressing pride that he had placed him on the bench last year. Scott Rash was nominated by the president in September. The Senate Judiciary Committee has not yet conducted a hearing on Rash, apparently because his committee questionnaire has not yet been turned in. Hinderaker was in private practice for his professional career until 2018 at Lewis Roca Rothberger Christie. He volunteered with or provided pro bono legal services for a number of community organizations in Tucson and was featured at one Federalist Society event shortly after being placed on the Pima County bench. That article, again, from AZ Law, I, I wrote, reported that, President Trump nominates Tucson Judge John Hinderaker for U.S. District Court bench. Another article that we were first to report on AZ Law, Arizona Supreme Court clears the steps, clears the steps out of last month's order prohibiting pictures. Here's the article. The Arizona Supreme Court this afternoon released a new order easing restrictions on photography, videography, and live streaming on the courthouse steps and elsewhere near the court after an October uproar about an order banning such activity. The new administrative order will still prohibit activity in those more public areas if it, quote, threatens any person, disrupts court operations, or compromises court security at entrances and exits and on patios, steps, and adjacent parking areas, end of the quote. AZ Law followed up with the court, and Dave Byers, the director of the administrative office of the courts, explained, saying, The wording of the first version of the administrative order drafted by court staff was not clear enough and caused legitimate confusion. We listened to the concerns raised and redrafted the order after seeking additional input, hopefully clarifying the issues. Attorneys had expressed concerns that the original order restricted the freedom of the press, and Phoenix Media attorney Dan Barr suggested that the restriction would be unconstitutional. Barr told AZ Law this afternoon that he is grateful, 
quote, I greatly appreciate that the Supreme Court listened to our concerns and took out the language concerning photography outside the courthouse. The new order rightly focuses on disruptive conduct outside the courthouse as opposed to photography. I thank the Supreme Court for quickly fixing what was an unintended consequence of its original order. Aaron Nash, the court's communications director, tells AZ Law that he had spoken with members of the public who were planning to come to protest last month's order, and that everyone I spoke with on the phone was respectful in discussing their concerns and were relieved to hear that they could come and record that the order was not a ban on that activity. And that article from AZ Law, Arizona Supreme Court clears the steps etc., out of last month's order prohibiting pictures. Well, let's read this uh, opinion commentary from Robert Robb in the Arizona Republic from uh, Friday. Mark Burnovich joined a lawsuit to repeal Obamacare. Now he is trying to cover his tracks. Here's his opinion commentary. There was something curious about the press release announcing that Attorney General Mark Burnovich, Senator J.D. Mesnard, and Representative Jeff Weninger are working on legislation to protect Arizonans with pre-existing conditions if the Federal Affordable Care Act were to be declared unconstitutional. The curiosity is Burnovich's involvement. This is a policy, not a legal matter, so what is the AG doing in the mix? Perhaps he is covering his tracks politically for being part of the reckless lawsuit to declare the ACA, colloquially known as Obamacare, unconstitutional to begin with. The loss of protection for those with pre-existing conditions is only one of numerous consequences for the state if Bernovich's lawsuit is successful. The press release states, in 2000, Arizona voters approved Prop 204, expanding the state's Medicaid coverage to childless adults up to 100 percent of the federal poverty level. This voter-protected initiative will remain in place even if the ACA is ultimately struck down by the nation's highest court. This is misleading in several respects. In the first place, the ACA allowed Medicaid coverage to expand to cover childless adults up to 133% of the federal poverty level, which Arizona chose to do. If the ACA is declared unconstitutional, that expansion goes away and 78,000 Arizonans lose their coverage. In the second place, the funding source for the state's share of providing Medicaid coverage for childless adults also goes away if Obamacare is found unconstitutional. For the traditional Medicaid population in Arizona, principally families with children, the federal government pays roughly 70 percent of the cost and the state pays the remainder. Under Obamacare, the federal government offered a much higher match for coverage for childless adults, currently around 92 percent. At the time, the state was broke, so the hospitals agreed to pay the state's share through what amounts to a bed tax. That is projected to fetch around $340 million this fiscal year. But the bed tax goes away if the federal match drops below 80 percent which is what would happen if Obamacare is struck down. It is true that Prop 204, offering Medicaid coverage for childless adults up to 100 percent of the federal poverty level, is voter-protected, pr- voter protected, but that also is misleading. 
At a minimum, the state would have to come up with an alternative source to replace the hospital bed tax, but it is not certain that it would have to. The proponents of Prop 204 claimed that proceeds from a tobacco lawsuit settlement would pay for the childless adult population, but they proved hugely inadequate. The measure called for the state to backfill shortages from available resources. During the tight times following the recession, the legislature froze new enrollments. Following a legal challenge, that freeze was upheld on the grounds that determining whether other resources were available was a political question for the legislature to determine. So the Prop 204 population would be at some risk if Brnovich's lawsuit is successful. There are more than 330,000 Prop 204 enrollees. Now, Brnovich decided to make Arizona a plaintiff in that lawsuit seeking to have Obamacare declared unconstitutional all on his own. Neither the governor nor the legislature asked him to do so or had to approve it. Given the monumental consequences for the state, perhaps another policy question for the legislature to ponder is whether the AG should have such authority. As to a law substituting state pre-existing protections for lost Obamacare ones, this is at present more of a validity than a proposal. It is not enough just to require insurance companies to offer coverage to those with pre-existing conditions. Their health care has to be subsidized. That can be done through premiums, taxes, or some combination. Obamacare does this in part through prohibiting medical underwriting, driving up premiums for everyone else. That is what makes Obamacare policies such a bad deal for so many people. There wouldn't be much point in getting rid of Obamacare but duplicating its dysfunction at the state level. Alternatives, such as risk pools or access to Medicaid coverage, require taxpayer support. So, in addition to replacing the hospital bed tax to pay for Medicaid coverage for childless adults, the state would have to stump up a fortune to replace the federal subsidies for those with pre-existing conditions. Brnovich should hope he loses his lawsuit. These tracks cannot be covered up. And that was a commentary from Arizona Republic columnist Robert Robb, headlined Mark Brnovich joined a lawsuit to repeal Obamacare. Now he's trying to cover his tracks. Next, we have a brief article from the Associated Press from Thursday. The headline, Arizona's tiny desert owl has a new chance for protection. Environmental groups say a tiny desert owl that makes its nest inside cavities of Arizona's saguaro cacti has a new chance for federal protection. The Tucson-based Center for Biological Diversity said Thursday an August 5, 2021 deadline is set for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to decide if the cactus ferriginous pygmy owl should be protected again as an endangered species. The owl lives in the Sonoran Desert in Arizona, also the neighboring Mexican state of Sonora and southern Texas. The pygmy owl was protected as an endangered species from 1997 to 2006, but lost that status following a developer's lawsuit that resulted in the protection's removal. The Center and Defenders of Wildlife filed a new court petition in 2007 to restore the endangered status and have been fighting since. And that was just an update from the Associated Press. Arizona's tiny desert owl, the pygmy owl, has a new chance for protection.
Well, let's move on to another article. from. This is an article from Howard Fisher of Capital Media Services. The headline, Legal Claim Filed Against Arizona Over Delayed Education Voucher Funding. This is from Friday. A dispute over funding to administer the state's voucher program may be spilling over into court. A notice of claim, the legal precursor to litigation, was filed on Thursday against the Arizona Department of Education by two conservative legal organizations on behalf of a parent. The parent says she was not provided the funding she was promised for her son for the second quarter of the year. According to attorneys for the Liberty Justice Center and the Goldwater Institute, state officials told the woman, identified only as KK, that they would that they would not provide the cash unless receipts for what was spent in the prior quarter were submitted and approved. ADA has failed, however, to ensure it has adequate staff and procedures to ensure the timely review and expense reports, the claim states. As a result, families like KKs have not received their second quarter funding through no fault of their own. That, the attorneys say, is a breach of the state's contract with the woman. Arizona Department of Education spokesman Richie Teller said this claim is baseless, no merit. They were funded a week before we received this lawsuit claim, he said, though he acknowledged that came after the deadline. The reason she was delayed is that she submitted an expense report incorrectly, Teller said. We had to reject it, and then we worked with her to get it approved. Daniel Sur of the Liberty Justice Center said the fact remains that the woman who homeschools her child did not get the money she needed on time, and that resulted in her being unable to pay a music tutor as well as the curriculum subscriptions that she needed. Complicating matters, the claim states, is that Arizona law requires any eligible expenses to be paid strictly from the state-issued debit card. That means parents who use their own dollars to keep the services coming while they await new state funding for the card cannot get reimbursed. As to any errors in the request for funding, Sewer said the Department of Education has insufficient staff to work with parents and get them corrected, if necessary, long before the payment is due. Unfortunately, what's happened both for this family and for dozens of families is they submitted their receipts on time, but the department did not follow through on its end of the bargain, he said. Teller acknowledged the Department of Education has been running behind in processing applications for vouchers, formerly known as, formally known as empowerment scholarship accounts, as well as in auditing the spending reports. He said the blame lies with the fact that the legislature has not given the department sufficient money to do the job. State Schools Chief Kathy Hoffman is asking for the full $4.4 million for the coming year that she says is supposed to be provided. State lawmakers first approved the voucher program in 2011, providing state dollars to eligible parents who send their children to private and parochial schools. But it also is available to parents who hire tutors to supplement private schooling, as well as those who choose to homeschool their children, with dollars available for education-related expenses. About 6,500 students currently get vouchers. The base amount is about $5,400, though students with special needs can get funding at much higher levels. Taylor said homeschooling parents have lots of variables and different expenses every month. They are more complex and require more time to go through to check for compliance, especially to ensure that the expenditures are for items that the law says can be covered. 
And that article from Howard Fisher of Capital Media Services headlined, Legal Claim Filed Against Arizona Over Delayed Education Voucher Funding. Well, we have several other interesting articles that we could get to, but we're out of time. So with that, we reach the end of this installment of AZ Law. Remember to listen or download our program wherever you find your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe as well. And since our primary purpose is to support the important services provided by Sun Sounds of Arizona, please don't forget to go to our website, arizonaslaw.org, and donate to Sun Sounds or KJZZ or KBAQ, their sister stations, as well. Please go ahead and become a member. We have several plans to grow and improve this program in the coming months, by the way. In fact, January, we're planning to expand our reporting coverage. But hey, your comments and suggestions to make this program better are always welcome as well, especially since this is SunSound's newest program. You can email me at paul.wyke.azlaw at gmail.com. And Wyke is spelled W-E-I-C-H. So, I'm your volunteer reader, Paul White, thanking you for listening to AZ Law. Thank you.